0: when I'm feeling overwhelmed my go-to is to go to a mate that gets it and these days I don't cry (laughs) Um, and just go I'm not coping I help me here and just somebody helping me put a list together is enough
1: Thank you so much for joining me today on the Leaders for Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti and I am your host. I am the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus. We are an award-winning social enterprise and we exist because we think it's not okay that in the UK today, if you have a child and want to care for it, it significantly impacts on your chances of getting to the most senior jobs. And I think we can change that. So the aim is to create a movement of changemakers to give you practical support, but also inspiration and food for thought to carve out the career progression that works for you within your vision for your family life. So today I am delighted and humbled to be able to share with you a conversation I've had with Poppy Jaman. Poppy shares very openly about her own experience of depression and postnatal depression and how during that period while she experienced that she founded and led one of the most successful organizations and most fast-growing charities in the UK. She's absolutely inspirational and it has been a real humbling experience to talk to her. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. On to the podcast. Very, very warm welcome Poppy to the podcast. Thank you. So you and I first had a chat, I think it must have been three years ago now when yeah. I asked you to come along to a Leaders for Babies event in the House of Commons. And you very bravely agreed to talk about your leadership journey in front of 40 babies and 50
0: <laughs> leaders. <laughs> that was so much fun. That was a lot of fun. I love
1: that it was but it needed some brave people (laughs) like you all just you
0: know Um, I
1: have to say in the evening before I can still remember not sleeping and it wasn't because of the babies it was because um yeah it was a interesting
0: uh, definitely a brave thing at the time to go (laughs) absolutely
1: why don't we start with you telling us a bit about you your your family setup Mm. and also your career to date
0: yeah, of course. You've obviously described my current roles and they're two of sort of other things that I, I do these days. But my career started, you know, when I was in my 20s with a local authority job down in Portsmouth running, uh, being a support worker for people with uh, mental health conditions. And I set up a team which was called Culture Works. And we would support people from minority communities who were coming out of hospital and settling back into community and everyday life. So that's really where my mental health journey started. And then in my early 20s, when my children were only five and one, I think, I got my first big job, which was the Regional Race Equality Lead for Mental Health with an organisation which was connected to the Department of Health called the National Institute for Mental Health in England. And that was a big leap to take with a very young family, knowing that it was regional and national and there was going to be lots of travelling and how was I going to manage that? And that issue only exacerbated, the personal issues only exacerbated a few years later when I had a relationship breakdown. So my youngest daughter was at this stage probably about four or five. And actually here I was doing now a regional job with three areas of responsibility and no support at home. So I found myself single parenting with a young family. And then that job evolved, that I moved from that job and I took Mental Health First Aid, um, which was a program we started within the Department of Health, and set it up as a community interest company, which was around about 2009. I did that for 10 years, to, so took a start-up organization to the success Mental Health First Aid is now one of England's leading mental health training organizations. I think last year it was recognized in the top 500 fastest growing SMEs in Europe. The year before that it was recognized in the top 10 fastest growing women led SMEs in the UK. I left that job last year And now I'm doing the roles that you described earlier. Um, So CEO of City Mental Health Alliance, which is a global organization led by large multinationals who are aspiring to becoming mentally healthy businesses. And then, of course, the non-executive role, which I think is really important for career progression. And then I do other things that I call my love jobs, which are just fun things to do. It's
1: important to have those. Absolutely. And just to clarify, non-executive jobs, those are jobs on boards of organisations yes. like your public... Um, public health England, yeah, in my yeah, case, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. But they, you know, there's trustee roles, not jobs that you don't necessarily get paid loads of money to do, but actually give you an enormous amount of experience outside of your day role.
1: On that note, I'm going to put in a plug. So my my uh, non-day job role, I also am the chair of Citizens Advice Lewisham. And should oh, anybody yeah. from Lewisham listen? <laughs> there, um, there are trusty roles going specifically for people who have a foot in the fundraising world.
0: Oh, amazing. Do you know, um, my... One of my first jobs, I think it might have been my second job in my life, and was a support worker at the Citizens Advice Bureau down in Portsmouth. And it was the job that I still hold close to my heart because it formed part of my recovery Mm. from poor mental health at the stage so I had been diagnosed with postnatal depression after the birth of my first daughter but to be honest with you my mental health issues started in my teens but it wasn't noticed and recognized because Mm -hmm. we didn't have the level of awareness or mental health literacy that we have now back 23 years ago but when my mental health conditions deteriorated and I really struggled at the time to get the correct support for example talking therapies weren't diverse the first counselor i saw didn't really understand the cultural dimensions of of being a bangladeshi woman and the responsibilities that that had combined with the british poppy and actually one of the things that i did was realize that i needed financial stability i needed routine and i needed to stretch my identity beyond a woman with a mental health issues and a young child. And so I got a part-time job at the Citizens Advice Bureau and it gave me connection to people, it gave me an income, it gave me routine and it gave me something to focus on and that was absolutely a core part of my recovery which is why I've made you know which is why I guess workplace mental health is such a big passion of mine and whether it was mental health first aid or my current job creating workplaces that are mentally healthy I think can form an incredibly healing part of our journey from whatever health conditions we've got. I'm
1: interested and this may be a very stupid
0: question and of someone who's not a mental health expert so yeah forgive me. How did you know that you had postnatal depression. So do you know what, at the time I didn't, and it's not a stupid question, we need to ask lots of stupid questions when it comes to mental health, because actually that's how we learn. And often, the stigma and embarrassment of not asking gets in the way of us seeking help. So I think it's a great question. Back then, I didn't know, I just knew these are the things that I experienced. So I wasn't sleeping. I was constantly crying over Uh, you know spilt milk literally I spilt milk the shops over the road I was sat on the kitchen floor crying because everything felt hopeless my thought patterns were quite distorted so I couldn't see beyond the moment so I couldn't really visualize what the future looked like everything felt quite bleak and so therefore I was having suicidal ideations quite a lot so thinking about Thinking things like, you know, the world would be a better place without me. How would I, how am I going to raise this child? Um, I'm not going to be a good mother. So distorted thinking because everything leads to a thought that is helpless or hopeless. When I experience stress, I I stop eating. So I haven't got an eating disorder, but my eating habits habits change quite significantly. So some people might eat more, I eat less because I find it difficult to swallow. Um, because my body's so tense. So it it was things like that that I realized. And also with postnatal depression, one of the things that women experience, and I certainly experienced, was this, I didn't, I'd go to sort of mother and baby groups and see other women really connecting to their babies. And I just didn't have that. It just felt it felt sort of quite numb. So I think all of those things together, I must have been presenting in a way that actually my health visitor at the time was the person that picked it up. It wasn't me. So she took me aside. And then I was really, oh, that was the other thing. I was really anxious about my baby. So then I got into a distorted pattern of thinking that she was going to die which you know is far from the truth but I was just constantly worried that I wasn't doing the right thing she wasn't healthy and it was those questions that my health visitor picked up on and went basically went you know look at your child she's absolutely fine she's a big chubby thing she's laughing she's giggling she's growing are you okay and it was at that point that I just burst into tears in the um, GP surgery and she took me to a separate room and actually got a GP to come and see me, even though I hadn't booked an appointment. So it was the kindness of her and the kindness of the GP at the time that sort of went over and above the call of duty to notice that there was something wrong because they were the professionals and I had no idea what was going on with me and did the appropriate assessment and went actually you're you're depressed and it's it's very likely that it's it's um, postnatal depression because of the feelings that you've got. What I now recognise, having worked in this space for a long time, is that actually my mental health issues probably started when I was in my late teens. I grew up in Portsmouth, which is in the top. Three I think cities in in our country that is racist so and it, and in the area er, er, years that I was there, you know racism was really a big deal, so I grew up in a context where. I experienced racism in school, in my community. For example, my dad would have a box of panes of glass because he would replace the windows of our takeaway when they were broken instead of trying to get the violence resolved through the authorities because we just knew that nobody was really going to do anything. Mm. And then, of course, I I come from a migrant family. So my mum came over here when she was a very young woman, had me very young and was quite isolated. So her own experiences of what I would describe, you know, health issues weren't positive positive. That then had an impact on us as a family. Dad was busy working because migrant families are trying to take care of two families, usually one here, one back at home, which was in our case, certainly the case for our family. So we were poor and we were growing up in a very harsh environment. And I was a very able student at school so I was like an all a student but there was complications in the sense that my family were a bit like oh god you know you're a girl you need to be prepared for getting married you know you're not you know the the likelihood of me going to college and university were very small because that wasn't part of the cultural context because Bangladeshi girls of my generation just got married so I was sort of this young person who had all these aspirations and dreams of traveling the world and having a career. But at home, I was being raised to be a wife and a daughter-in-law. And then there was the racism and then there was poverty. So actually, I can track back to feeling anxious and losing sleep and having distorted thinking in my late teens. They just surfaced when I, they came to Mm -hmm. a head when I, when I had a baby.
1: And I'm really glad that you're naming that more, I don't know if you call it structural or societal, et cetera, that, that, that web within which mental health issues um, arise. I just want to pick up on your earlier experience with your amazing health visitor and GP. So if someone thinks that they're experiencing this, is the advice to go to your GP or reach out to your health professionals? Or is there... Some, or if, even if a friend is experiencing something like this, is there any particular
0: yeah. thing they should do? Well, do you know what's fantastic is on the 7th of October, just, just last month, Public Health England launched a platform called Every Mind Matters. And Every Mind Matters is a platform that you can go on and they it asks you sort of five or six questions, I think it is. And then it gives you a mental health, your own personalised mental health plan. But those questions are designed to help you recognise and notice whether you might be going through a stressful period. It will give you guidance on what to do. So I would say at the very least... Go onto every mind matters and have a look at the plethora of information that Public Health England have created in partnership with lots of different organisations and the NHS and put on that website. It's the first resource of its kind that is that is government led, which is so cool. And then I absolutely would say to everybody, you know, we've got the amazing NHS and I know it's far from perfect given the resources and limitations, resource limitations into the NHS at the moment, but your GP is your first point of call. And if you are experiencing any of the things that I've described, do some personal research on Every Mind Matters, but also there's no harm in having a conversation with your health visitor, your GP, because... The earlier you seek help, the sooner you will recover. The harder, the longer you leave it, the harder. It's just like it is to recover, like any other health condition. If I go back now, I often wonder what conversations I would have with my 16, 17-year-old self. When I was losing sleep and feeling anxious and having distorted thinking, I would definitely be saying things like, "Get some sleep mm. let's look let's get your sleep sorted out and then let's so if i I wonder if i- if I knew what I knew now or if what the resources that we've got the level of mental health literacy we've got in our society now, whether I would educate myself differently and prevented my mental health issues deteriorating to the extent that they did that actually I ended up trying to take my life twice Mm -hmm. in my early 20s so early late teens early 20s so I think that prevention is absolutely critical and that requires all of us to recognize that mental health issues are not a sign of weakness they're just a health Mm -hmm. condition And if you've got a health condition, you just go and get it checked out. And that's a really proactive, courageous, strength thing to do. Mm. It's not a weakness.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. My partner and I talk about mental health, as I mentioned earlier, quite a lot over the dinner table because he runs the social enterprise for mental health in schools called Mindshead. And he tells me, he might actually have stolen this from you, but it's something along the lines of it should be the same thing whether you have a broken leg or whether you... Experience mental health issues and and that really stuck with me, and we 're still a long way from that shift in thinking that needs to happen
0: i think do you know what i think we 're getting there i think I, I hear the younger generation talk about it very differently to sort of the forty pluses to my generation and older, and I think that 's because over the last twenty years we 've done a lot of work in the u k at least to change that narrative and it's such a welcome change but I agree with you there's things like medication stigma let's sort of focus on that for 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 a little bit I've I had a friend the other day who was like oh you know I've been to therapy I recognize that actually I've probably had depression low-level depression for a long time and that's why some of the things that are going on in my life are going on and I feel very stuck but I don't want to take medication and so I said to her if you'd just got a diagnosis of diabetes, would you go, I don't want to take medication? You just wouldn't think twice about it. So why are you thinking twice about this particular medication? And you know what? It might not work and it's trial and error, but we must do everything we can to help our recovery. But when it comes to medications for mental health conditions... We think twice, and I'm not saying medication is the answer. It's not. It's usually a combination of things for people, but you have to go on that experimental journey to work out what works for you. But to outrightly go, oh, well, I've, I've, I've got a diagnosis. I've been distressed for a long time, but I'm still not going to take meds.
1: Mm. Well,
0: what is it that you're going to do then? Let's, have a, let's do a plan. So, you know, the broken leg analogy is still a good one. But I, I think it, we have to th- really think pragmatically around you know, other physical health conditions that we all know that our family members have, we might even have, and just think about how we treat the two differently. Mm. That's
1: very true. So you mentioned about it being, you know, not being a weakness, and I agree that there's a shift in thinking around mm. uh, it not being a weakness so much, but other than you, I don't know any leaders who've publicly said that they've had or maybe I just don't follow enough people Mm. on Twitter, but I don't know anybody who any leaders who have said they've experienced mental health challenges. And I'm interested for you. Do you think your postnatal depression held you back in your leadership career?
0: So first of all, there are lots of leaders now talking about it. So if I go to my organization, City Mental Health Alliance, you know, when we launched eight years ago, when we started CMHA eight years ago, we literally couldn't find any leaders now. I could give you a massive long list of people that are talking about it, including our chair, our deputy chair, who are leaders in big banks in the city. We've got colleagues from Deloitte, PwC, HSBC, Goldman Sachs, you know, in leadership positions, men and women talking about it. And there was almost this kind of all men definitely won't talk about it. Well, I've got a list of more men than women. So we've done a cracking job in getting leaders to to recognize that actually if we speak out about this and people look at us and go, oh, well, you've still got a successful career and you're still a successful parent or whatever criteria people describe, it, it, cr- cr- criteria people use to measure success, it sort of hits people and go, oh, you know, maybe that's okay then. But what all of these leaders will say is for a long time, they didn't talk about it. And it's only in the last sort of five years that we've got a real sea change come around this, which is great. Did my leadership career get affected by my mental health conditions? No, absolutely not. And I think that's because of what I said right at the beginning was I saw my job as a well-being (laughs) toolkit so along with exercise and having good quality conversations with my mates and making sure that I'm topped up because my relationships with my friendship my friendships were around people my friends were around me and I was seeing them and chatting to them my job and the busyness of it and the purpose of my jobs have been a massive help and actually there were times when I probably overworked so you know when I wasn't sleeping particularly when the girls were younger and you do the parenting thing and put them to bed and you know eight o'clock you're up and now I'm a single parent and alone at home I'd just work until whenever two, three o'clock sometimes in the morning, because I was doing my MBA as well. I went back to university as an older student in my 20s and completed my MBA as a part-time course. So I'd just study or work. And then, so I was living on very small amounts of sleep, but instead of ruminating, what I did was use my job and my studies as a focus. I'm not saying that's healthy, but it worked for me. And in a weird kind of way, it probably drove me to work in the mental health space and actually I didn't talk about my mental health issues publicly not because I was ashamed or embarrassed of it because I hadn't really thought about it was until about 2016.
1: Wow I didn't realize. Yeah that. yeah so
0: it was in 2016 World Mental Health Day my team said to me you know you've lead mental health first aid it's a massively successful organisation but the general public and our mental health first aid instructors etc don't really know that you've had lived experience of mental health issues and i thought oh of course i i mean i've never not talked about it but people don't didn't ask you that question back then so i wrote a keynote and on world mental health day 2016 delivered it and I was really nervous because it was so personal to share the intimate details of my mental health journey but it was great because you know straight away afterwards I think one person came up to me and said I, I had we had no idea I thought you were Oxford educated and and that couldn't <laughs> happen to you yeah. <laughs> yeah and um I you know I hadn't I left school at 16 and had you know an, a, a very different journey so But so, I guess, in a weird kind of way, even though I hadn't made the connections myself, the fact that I was using my jobs and I had this personal experience, I could just relate to people that were in mental health systems, so that, you know, in hospitals, in community care, I could relate to people who were in the voluntary sector trying to amplify the voice of people that had been discriminated against for it for, and I felt lucky that I hadn't so I it was it was a real driver actually for my career and I'm lucky I've had the amazing jobs that I've had mm. I'm interested in
1: overwhelm mainly because I've just had a, a conversation with a group of parents in senior leadership roles this morning about it and many of them are really ambitious in the work but also they have young kids who are not sleeping and they're feeling that overwhelm. And I'm, I'm just intrigued. Obviously, you've had an experience where working, and especially working with purpose, re- supported your mental health. But do you have any thoughts about how to
0: oh. manage overwhelm? Oh, my goodness. The number of times overwhelm <laughs> has taken over my life. So let me give you a couple of examples that I really remember and how I managed that. So I remember it, the girls were quite young I was running the race equality program and a mental health promotion program for the region I was in my pre-dissertation phase of my MBA I just sat two exams my mum was in hospital with some physical health issues and I was a single parent and I had planned to go away to the Isle of Wight Festival that weekend. And as a mum of young, or parent of young children, you don't get very many opportunities to go party. I mean, you just don't. So my friend had said to me, come and stay with me at the Isle of Wight. She lived on the Isle of Wight, and we'll do a weekend. Anyway, so I'd ag- arranged childcare and everything else. And the night before, it was like Thursday... And I just hadn't caught up on the amount of stuff that I needed to catch up on. And I remember sat in my garden, like bawling my eyes out because I was just so overwhelmed and something had to give I sort of looked at my life in the in the moment and thought I don't know what can give because I've got to drop the kids off at their friend's house then I've got to come back then I've got to pack then I've got to submit that dissertation proposal and I was still recovering from the exams and the job I've got to come back to on Monday and we've got a big event on Tuesday it was just horrendous And I really don't want to not go to the Isle of Wight Festival. I've been like, it's been in my diary for months and it, I've really, and it was, so I phoned my friend up uh, who was at the Isle of Wight Festival and just was just like, I don't know what to do. And she just went, look, Poppy, it sounds like you just need to be at home we'll do it another year. And I, and, I, and I didn't go and I think I gave the tickets away. And there was another occasion which was very similar to that. And again, I phoned a friend and she went to me, right, get your diary out. And I got my diary out. And she was like, right, let's go through each day of your diary, what can go. And she literally sat on the phone with me as I typed, she narrated and I typed emails to people going, I'm really sorry, I can't do this meeting. And it sounds so simple, because why can't you do that for yourself? But when, your feet, when I was feeling that overwhelmed, I felt like such a failure and I didn't want to let people down and I didn't want to... It Just the distorted thinking comes in quite quickly. So having someone who knew me well that I trusted who was also, you know, a working mum, I guess. So she knew the dynamics. Sit down and literally type Mm. the emails for me, which weren't, I'm sick and I can't cope. They were just measured. I'm really sorry, priorities have come up. I'm unable to do this this week. Can we postpone it? Yeah, It's really simple. But in the time when you're feeling overwhelmed, it's difficult to find the words. So I've learned from those early days that when I'm feeling overwhelmed my go-to is to go to a mate that gets it and these days I don't cry (laughs) and just go I'm not coping I help me here and just somebody helping me put a list together is enough somebody helping me look at my day and go what needs to go. I completely agree and I think when you
1: are in that overwhelmed space you don't I don't realize what is important and what it isn't anymore suddenly everything seems to have the same importance and I, I do the same I use my poor partner who, who just is very ruthless and says this is not important that's not important and uh, yeah you can ditch that and then what I love about what you said was the simplicity you don't have to over explain why you're not doing it anymore it's just other priorities have come up I'm not able to do this at the moment I tend to also throw in a bit of flattery and, and say I can't Dedicate this important project, the amount of attention and and love it needs,
0: which uh, often goes down and which well. is true isn't it mm. it's not even flattering it's its flattering and it's but it's true you know you when you care about the work that you're doing, I want to turn up and be on it every time, and that's the expectation I have set for myself. Nobody else has said that. I want to turn up and I want to be really good at whatever interaction i'm having and so the overwhelmment is partly to do with that because you don't want to do a half-baked job because you're not going to be proud of yourself. So it's, and you're right, prioritizing our ability to make decisions and prioritize, it gets taken over by brain fuzz as well. So it's really difficult to know whether the dishes are important or whether the emailer is important, whether the dissertation proposal is important because they all feel like they're important mm. and then I'll start seeing all the jobs that need doing in the house <laughs> so overwhelmment seems to have this really amazing way of attracting all the things <laughs> that you have to do that absolutely don't need to be done because the dishes are going to still be there tomorrow and the the floor's still going to be manky tomorrow it's mm. they don't need to be done now but suddenly I'll feel like everything needs to be done now and that's when you need somebody who is more clear thinking than you, mm. that you trust, which is that you will just listen to them. So you're not going to argue. You've got to make that call with the decision that they're going to make the decisions because you've not in the right place to do it.
1: Mm. And would I, I be right in saying, uh, and do and tell me off if I put words in your mouth, but I look at you and you have really changed the mental health landscape in the UK and I presume you wouldn't have been able to do that if you always ensured that the floor was clean and that everyone's <laughs> needs uh, and everyone, every last email was
0: answered. Do you know, so one of the things that I say, particularly to women, but parents is as soon as you can afford it, get a cleaner. So I have, and it was the best bit of advice another female friends gave to me. So coming from the type of family that I come from, you know, having a cleaner was like a, what the hell? you Like my mum would have been like, what are you doing? You know, that's not you, that's your job. And that's like, it's felt like a really privileged thing to do. So you have to get over yourself first. A colleague at the time said to me, if you work out what your hourly rate is, and you work out what you're going to pay somebody to clean your house rate is, And if your hourly rate is more than that, you're not being efficient, how much is that time worth? And when I looked at it that practically, even with my project management or job, you know, my job hat on, that was an inefficiency in my life because I was losing out twice. First of all, I was doing a job that I could pay someone else less to do. Second of all, and most importantly of all, I was losing out on quality time with my children. So... That's one of the things that I say to people. And, and for years, I never told anybody that I had a cleaner because I felt embarrassed because I didn't want anybody to know because of my cultural context around being privileged in that way. But the the other thing that, that I did was I found women cleaners who were starting up their own business. I had a woman gardener who was starting out her business. So I took a very conscious approach to support other women who were starting out new businesses themselves and then supported them with finding other friends Mm. who they could do the jobs for. So it then felt like a little community of Mm. women supporting each other as opposed to, oh, that's just my cleaner. It wasn't like that. It was my friend who was starting up a business who was doing. So that's one of my top tips to families who are struggling with the amount of stuff to do is look at your stuff to do and what can you delegate
1: Mm -hmm. what comes through very strongly is you have to let go Mm. of what you thought an ideal parent and leader would be in order to become the awesome leader that you are today so there's it sounds like there was a bit of saying goodbye to the ideal clean at night and get everything sorted which
0: it's a hard thing to do, isn't it? When I was growing up into that phase of life, it was definitely about you are invincible. You can do everything. You can be the perfect housewife and the perfect daughter-in-law and the perfect mother and the perfect career woman. That's nonsense. That's, that's, that's just asking for trouble. And But it took a little bit of time, like you say, and letting go, recognising what you can let go of and not seeing that as a as a negative thing actually seeing that as a very empowering thing you've worked hard to gain the privileges that you can can and if in that journey you can support other people do it it's win-win all around mm. what did you do
1: with guilt for example if suddenly you see a child who always pretends they're on the phone because they, you see they, they see you on the phone all the time or they say mommy don't go how did you deal with that
0: Yeah, I think the guilt thing never fully leaves. And I think that when you're a working parent and particularly working mum, because of the social expectations on us, we seem to have an additional level of guilt. For me anyway, the social context was that I should be at home. And, you know, my my mum would say things like, you know, you're up and down the country, you should be at home with the kids you know and things like statements like that were sort of quite common you know from people there was this sort of and other other women friends as well well we're at home picking up the children every day from school I'm like well I'm not (laughs) I'm not but you got you got a sense that actually that's what I should be doing and anyway one of one of the things that my therapist said to me is whenever you have a thought that starts with should just pause and think about whose should that is and if you're creating a life that is unique to you and then you need to create what you want and what fits with your life as opposed to what you should do. That, again, was another amazing piece of advice uh, or, or you know, guidance from my therapist. And actually, I still fall into the trap of, oh, God, I should be around. Because actually, when they're little, there's a lot of practical, physical demand on you. But my daughters at the moment have been going through job search. So real transition point in life. One's left university, got come back traveling, now looking for her first career job as opposed to the pub jobs. And, and the other one's taken a year out. And it's been really, then for various reasons, some of that's been quite difficult because we know that young people in transition is a real stress point in life. And, you know, even last week I was thinking, oh, goodness, should I be here? I should feel like I should be at home and advising and, you know, nurturing them. And and so I don't think that guilt ever fully goes away. But what I do is make sure that as soon as those feelings come up, I address them by picking up the phone to the girls or when they were little, actually making quality time. Because I think the guilt surface from actually, what I'm really feeling is desire to spend time with my children. So I turn the guilt into what is it that I want? And actually, I'm feeling guilty isn't helpful. But what that means is I, I really want to spend some time with My daughters or a family member—that's what that's about. So I do something about it, and it might be picking up a phone and going. Actually, you know, the girls are really busy. The kids are really busy. I've got two stepsons as well. They're they're, just—they've got their own lives. I pick up the phone and I'm like, oh, you know, uh, do you want to go out for dinner tonight? And they're like, uh, no, I'm free in four weeks' time. I'm like, (laughs) oh, okay, all right then. So actually, the guilt alleviates itself a little bit anyway. But it is. I act on it because I recognize guilt as a desire to do something because I'm missing someone. Mm. You have an interesting view on part-time work. Mm.
1: Can you tell me about it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so we've talked about this before. Look, there were many points, particularly in the overwhelm moments (laughs) in my career, which were much more common when the kids were younger and the single parenting days was, maybe I should drop my hours go down to three days a week, go down to, what is it, doing the maths to see what I could afford, you know, what's my outgoings and can I just pair it right back to just earn what I need as opposed to having choices. And again, another top tip from another colleague and a friend was she got dropped down to three days a week and she said to me, look, Poppy, I might might have dropped down to three days a week I do a full-time job in those three days a week. I get paid part-time pro rata hours. And now that I've dropped down, it's almost impossible for me to negotiate up. Don't do it. What you should be negotiating is flexible working. And I've been very lucky because I held regional jobs and my bosses were forward-thinking leaders. I've always pretty much had a home-based contract So I've negotiated and I think agile working is a massive thing in the city at the moment. But I've been agile working pretty much all my career, I would say, from the race equality job within the region, which was, I don't know, I think it was about 23, 24. So for the last 20 years, I've worked flexibly and I've had managed my own diary. So what I did was each time went to my bosses, what are my objectives? I'll meet them. And some probably, but I'm not going to be counting the hours with you. Because if that's the part, if if you wanna manage me through how many hours I've done, I can't do this job because some days I'll work till three o'clock in the morning to get the job done and other days I'll finish at three because I need to do something with the kids. And so I think that's really important because one of the reasons there's the massive gender pay gap is that women end up reducing our hours not negotiating our pay appropriately because we feel we feel almost feel lucky to Mm -hmm. have a job
1: absolutely and the data shows that so yes of course you get paid less if you work three days a week versus five but even pro rata part-time work is associated with a big pay penalty yeah Um, so that's something important to To, look
0: out for yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I I just so, again, it's not going to work for everybody. But I made a decision. And I think that was also partly driven by the poverty within which I grew up. I didn't want to live in an area where my window was going to be broken every other week. You know, I didn't want to never have a we never had holidays when we were kids at all. We went to London to see my auntie, which was a lot of fun. But we didn't go abroad. So my first big trip abroad with was just me and my girls for three weeks in Thailand and to be able to afford that and share that experience with them and give them the opportunity so actually yes I've worked full-time but I've also then been able to have the choices and provide them with choices that we wouldn't have had otherwise I wouldn't say that I negotiated my salary appropriately each time so that's certainly something if I did it again would definitely go back and go now that we're aware of the whole gender pay gap thing in such as I mean I knew it but I never really gave it the attention that Mm. it deserved but I think I'd be much harder negotiating the salaries that I was on because I'm sure there were times that I was paid way less than I should have been paid but you live and learn Absolutely.
1: And we're recording this on the 12th of November. And I think is it tomorrow or the day after tomorrow where it's equal payday? And from then onwards until the 31st, women in the UK work for free if you want to look at the pay gap that way. So it's a it's definitely a helpful reminder. Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying this conversation, but uh, we are coming to the end of our time. Why don't we finish with one or two practical things, someone who's currently struggling with just well-being can do today, assuming they don't have t- lots of time to take a big holiday or go for two hours at the gym. Is there anything that they can start with?
0: Absolutely. Look, you know, we it, look up the five ways to well-being. It's evidence-based, but it's things like really simple things, like make time to connect with a mate and have a conversation. Even if it's just once a week that you have an hour on the phone when the kids have gone to bed to just have a really good quality conversation about what's going on in your world little bit of exercise and I think I don't need to say that to young parents I mean my goodness you're just running around all over the place but actually just a short walk to the shop not maybe jumping in the car all the time because physical activity is so good for our well-being little things like learning a new skill and that might not be possible to practice again when you've got a young family but that doesn't mean I'm not talking about going out and learning to play the guitar. I'm talking about really simple things like learning to bake cake with the kids that actually involves cooking is a really good way of actually learning a new skill, but involving the kids and pausing, uh, you know, switch the phone off and just have an hour, half an hour, half a day. I regularly do leave my phone at home and it's a conscious decision and just go without a phone for a day or half a day because it's really important to take that break and be present in what you're doing and we know that we have better relationships when we're present as well and it's a really important factor for parents with young children as well making eye contact teaching them to communicate and actually being present with them in the moment so those are the things that I would say you do which aren't that bigger leap is just about thinking more carefully about how you're doing your day and building in the five ways of well-being, Mm. even if it's one or two of those things once a day.
1: Mm, I love that. Very small changes. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Poppy. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this conversation and I hope it did give you as much food for thought as it gave to me. I've been really humbled by the listener number so far with this podcast, but in order to bring you the most inspirational and thought-provoking guests, I want to grow the listener numbers further. So you can do something to support me, which is if you right now look at your address book on your phone and WhatsApp to five friends who you think could benefit from the conversations that we're having here on this podcast uh, please share it with them and also do go online and leave a written review as well as a five, ideally a five star review on the podcast also I would love your help and uh, thanks for bearing me with me as I'm asking for lots of help you'll see that social entrepreneurs tend to ask lots of people for help I think that comes with uh, trying to make a difference so the second point I would like to ask for your help with is I've just launched applications to the 2020 Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. It's a programme I'm super proud of. It's all about progressing your leadership careers unapologetically, continuing to aim high, while at the same time, unapologetically again, wanting to be a present parent and we give you a senior leader mentor, you get access to the latest research around how to manage career progression, how to manage workplace politics. You can do all that while having your baby on your lap, should you have a baby. And also I think the most powerful thing is that you connect with a group of wonderful people who all share the same passion and each in their own way want to progress their career while still being engaged parents so I hope to see as many applications as possible and I would love for you to share it so again if you can share it with five friends all the information is on the website www.leadersplus.org.uk as a social enterprise with practically no marketing budget you sharing this right now will make a massive difference so thank you and I'm looking forward to the next conversation